<coughs> now, how many of us can uh, remember the game show Call My Bluff? Uh, believe it or not, I'm, I'm actually old enough uh, to remember watching the game show on, on the, the BBC. And if you remember, the point of the, uh, of the game was for two teams, two teams of three celebrities, uh, to take it in turn to provide three definitions of a rather obscure word, only one of which was correct. And then the object was for the other team then that they had to, to guess which was the correct definition. The other two being bluffs, of course. So the premise, therefore, for the show was, who is telling the truth? Who is telling the truth and, and who can we trust? And we can ask ourselves that very question when it comes to the big questions of life. Who is telling the truth? Who or what indeed can we, can we put our complete trust in? Science, it would seem, uh, is, has and, and is attempting to disprove the existence of God. Simply stating that you and I, that we are all a combination of, of molecules which, which simply came about as a, a random haphazard series of events. At the other end of the spectrum, we have theologians who attempt to explain truth through the lens of faith, which is what we believe. Now, we don't believe that what the scientists have to say is the whole truth. Far from it. But are there, are there also concerns about what some of the theologians might be telling us? <clears throat> well, I would suggest that yes, there are. And one such theologian is this gentleman, Rob Bell. And recently, in recent years, within the last, within the last decade, he has become um, most well-known for, uh, for his book as author of the Times bestseller and somewhat rather controversial book, Love Wins. Love Wins. And behind everything that Rob Bell says lies the false doctrine of universalism. Now, universalism or universal reconciliation is the doctrine that all sinful and all alienated human souls, which is you and I and all of humanity, because of divine love and mercy, will ultimately be reconciled to God. That we will all be saved and that we will one day go to heaven. And this belief is by no means a product of the modern age. Oregon, writing in the third century AD, was one of the, the earliest and one of the strongest advocates of, of universal salvation. And then more recently, uh, the writing of uh, John A.T. Robinson, who was a, a radical English theologian, and he was active in around the, the 1960s, so relatively recent, he promoted the idea of, of universalism. And in his book, one of his books uh, titled In the End God, he says, may we not imagine a love so strong that ultimately no one will be able to restrain himself or herself from free and grateful surrender. So basically what Robinson and Bell are saying is that in the end, love will conquer all making the existence of hell impossible. Because if love conquers all, there cannot be a place such as hell. Because hell is a place that is devoid of love. 
But are we to believe? Okay, this is the question. Are we to believe uh, these men and what they tell us about the future? Because if you, if you were to read um, Bell's book, which I wouldn't recommend that you do, but if you were to read his book, you could easily be led to believe that most of what he says is actually true. In fact, he says many great things which are true about uh, the nature of God and, and which are, are affirming to those of us who love him as our Lord. And he puts forward many strong arguments. But whenever you take time and take time to, to tease these arguments apart, you come to the conclusion that they are flawed. In fact, before you even come to these arguments, listen to what he says in the preface of his book. He writes, there are a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians, predestination, that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance of anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. And you can go buy this book in the Faith Mission in Korean. So before we even reach the first chapter, Bell has already contradicted the words of Christ. Didn't Christ say, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So we must make up our minds. What do we believe to be true? What do we believe to be true about, about heaven and hell? And, and ultimately, who do we believe is telling us the truth? In Matthew's Gospel, which we read from, in Matthew's Gospel, there are recorded for us 30 occasions, 30 times, whereby Jesus makes the claim, I tell you the truth. 30 times. Matthew chapter 25 is one, of the, is one of the strongest and the clearest passages of Scripture which highlight the consequences of how we choose to live and therefore the destinations awaiting us in light of those choices. And the choice that is placed before us comes in the form of action. It is how we act towards others. We saw that in the video in the, the children's address. And in light of that, how our actions are shaped by our relationship towards Jesus. And these things are crucial. They are crucial because Jesus tells us that the outcome will be one of two things. And it's black and white. It's on the page. Eternal punishment or eternal life. And this parable which Jesus tells is, is unique. It is unique in the sense that it is the only time in all all of Scripture, now get this, the only time in all of Scripture where our actions and choices can lead to eternal punishment. And eternal punishment is something that Rob Bell attempts to refute in his book. So before we come to the destinations in relation to our actions, let's consider briefly what Christ is teaching through this, this parable. It isn't really, well, it maybe is difficult for us, um, even, those, even those of us who are particularly agriculturally minded, to distinguish between sheep and goats. But as I said to the children, if, if you and I were to, uh, to travel back in time to when Jesus was telling this parable, the distinction between sheep and goats would not have been so noticeable. 
Separating sheep from goats in Western countries in our society is not difficult. As sheep have been bred to accentuate their, their, their wool production, basically, so that they look quite different to goats. However, sheep and goats in, in Asia and, and, and in Africa are often very similar in appearance. But for the shepherds, that's a herd of sheep and goats. But for the shepherd, there is no problem, or a flock, herd, flock, sorry. Uh, there is no problem when it comes to separating the two species. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goat on his left goats on his left now biblical scholars are undecided uh, on the on the time the definitive time in god's big plan of salvation as to when this event will take place that when Christ, when when jesus will come and actually do this some interpreters hold that this judgment will 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 occur prior to um, jesus's um, earthly millennial kingdom, that point when, when Christ will return to the earth physically. Others see this time of judgment as that which closes the earthly age prior to the, the establishment of God's final eternal kingdom, which would be when Christ has come and he has, he has dealt judgment and then the, the, this earth will be no more and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And this, this is a position I would, would agree with. And of course, it is not... It is not unheard of for biblical interpreters to, to disagree on certain things. But what is clear, and what is clear in this passage, and what is crucial, is that judgment is coming. And this event which Jesus is speaking about is what will finally, through righteous justice, the righteous justice of God, will separate both the living and and the dead, those who are born to the Spirit, those who are dead in the Spirit, will separate them with finite consequences. And for us, it brings home the stark reminder that there is no middle ground. Heaven or hell. Eternal punishment or eternal life. Jesus doesn't say there's a, there's a nice, happy medium there somewhere. And too often... Too often what we find is that the gospel message is diluted to such a degree that all paths will eventually lead to heaven. Too often our churches preach a, a watered-down, a watered-down, weak version of Christianity. But Christ's words, when, when taken seriously, are neither weak nor are they watered-down. Christ speaks the truth. And on many occasions the truth is often well, it is often too hard for us to stomach. We don't want to believe the truth. Let me take you back to Rob Bell briefly, commenting on Matthew 25. He says this, and he's trying to sound very uh, eloquent and sophisticated and theological when he, he refers to the Greek. You know by now that I don't particularly like Rob Bell. However, this is what he says. The goats are sent in the Greek language. So when reading in the Greek, the goats are, the goats are sent to an, uh, an aeon of Colazo. Aeon, we know, has several meanings. One is age or, or period of time. Another refers to intensity of experience. 
The word, the word calazo is a term from horticulture. It refers to the pruning and the trimming of the branches of a plant so that it can flourish. Now you can sense already that he is trying to distort the words that Christ is saying. And then he goes on to say, an aeon of calazo, depending on how you translate aeon and calazo then, the phrase can mean a period of pruning or a time of trimming or an intense experience of correction. And then he concludes this section by saying, so when we read eternal punishment, it's important that we don't read categories and concepts into a phrase that aren't there. Jesus isn't talking about forever as we think of forever. It's almost like purgatory. You know, there's going to be a second chance to get yourself right with God. If you feel this time, you'll be okay. God's going to trim you and prune you and you're going to get to heaven. But what Bell forgets is that the same word is used when describing the opposite of eternal punishment, eternal life. He fails to use his argument in that instance because if he did, what he would be doing or what he would be claiming is that eternal life, as Jesus refers to it, isn't forever. Therefore, showing Christ to be a liar. If eternal punishment isn't forever, therefore eternal life cannot be forever. And on all occasions in Scripture where the Greek word aeonion, aeon, as we used, is used, it is used in connection with the eternality of God, that He is eternal. And the noun that is used, colasin, at its very root, means penal affliction, punishment, or torment. And you can't get away from that truth. 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, uh, we read there, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Uh, hundreds and thousands of people listen to the likes of Rob Bell. And I think we've heard enough from, from Rob Bell. And folks, this is why. This is why we have the scriptures before us. We have the opportunity to read and to study them and to discern them for ourselves. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, what, we can learn what is of God and what is not. And God has not left us to guess how things might turn out. So in returning to God's word and returning to Matthew 25, what are the implications for us from what Christ says? Well, we see that there's a call and there's a kingdom. There's a call and a kingdom, but we also learn that there is, there is apathy and an eternity separated, separated from the king. Because we read there, then the king will, will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And this invitation uh, the, the invitation to come is a result of, of acts of love and kindness willingly given while journeying here on earth. This is not a scripture which claims that salvation is based on good works. But it does say that we will be rewarded for those good works. And they are those good works. They are simply acts which are, uh, are carried out because Christ has told us the greatest of the commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Christ goes on to say, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And there are two things to take note of here. Firstly, Christ tells us that the place of eternal fire, hell, Gehenna, as it's referred to in the Greek, is a place that God has prepared primarily for the devil and his angels. You see, it was never a part of, never a part of God's plan of uh, uh, that 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 our final destination would be such a place. But His Word tells us that there are consequences for sin. Sin is a separation from God, and the harsh reality is that this separation is eternal, and it is unbearable. The second thing to note is that our actions and our attitudes are crucial in this. The way we live our lives, what we do with our time, our money, how we treat our fellow man, these things matter. Take any any fellowship or congregation. On one level, we are all the same. We come to church, we sing hymns, we give our offering. But as God looks upon us, as he looks upon any congregation, as God looks upon us, he sees a distinction, very clear distinction. And he sees two categories of people. He sees goats and he sees sheep. He sees believers and he sees unbelievers. But you know something, the miraculous thing about this is that God is the God of transformation Because he can turn a goat into a sheep. He can transform your life in such a way that your final destination is changed in an instant. And these are not my words. These these promises, they're, they're not my promises, but they are the very promises of God himself. We read in Ezekiel, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." It's a transformation. And you know, God loves us so much, so much that he doesn't wish to see any of us dying in, in our sin. He has, for he has given us the opportunity time and time and time again to be free from sin, to come to the cross, to ask him to forgive us and to set us free. You know, this is nothing Nothing to do with whether you think you're worthy enough, whether, whether we think we're good enough. Those things don't even come into the equation with God. What matters is whether we're humble enough, humble enough to say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot earn your salvation. Save me, therefore, by your grace and your grace alone. And you know, whenever you do that, when you come to Christ, God gives you his spirit. He imparts into you the inheritance that is, that is due to Christ, that is Christ. He, 
he takes a pen metaphorically and he, he writes your name in, in the book of life in his own blood and he, he secures your destination of eternal life with him. Nothing can remove that. And the question is, do you want it? Do you want that truth, that promise? Well then, as, as God says, come, come and, come and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as you do that, enter into the joy and, and the anticipation of what God has prepared for you. And what has he prepared for you? Well, Jesus says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, not a, not a spiritual outer body existence, not some temporal cloud-based location in the sky, but an actual physical place. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. And do you know the way to where I'm going? John MacArthur once said, simply put, we're going to be with a person as much as we're going to live in a place. The presence of Christ is what makes heaven, heaven. And now we don't have time this morning to begin to look together and to start to answer the question, well, what will heaven be like? But what we can be assured of is that heaven, heaven is not merely something in the future. We aren't merely living this life waiting for the next because heaven has come down to us. Christ dwells in the hearts and the souls of those who love him. He has made his dwelling, his dwelling place within us and has left us his spirit to, to lead and to guide us. And if you truly want to begin to know what heaven is like, well then you first need to come to that place of trusting Jesus here and now. And believe me, believe me when you do that, you will not regret it. I have never, never in my life heard anybody who has come to Jesus and given their life to him say that they wished they had never done it. Not once. God desires after you. He is passionately pursuing you. And you know, there will be things that we won't understand this side of eternity. There will be things that we just don't get. But you know, that's not what's important. What's of greatest importance is what happens on that day of judgment. When the redeemed of God will be brought into his everlasting arms of peace and embrace. And the joy and the truth is that you can be there. You can be there. And I pray, I pray that you know the assurance of that deep, deep within your heart. Let us pray. Christ Jesus, we thank you that your word is truth, that you are truth, we realize that there are many and many false prophets who would try to, to lead us away from the truth and, and try to get us to believe a, an easier way, a simpler way, a middle ground. But Jesus, you have shown us the truth that there is no middle ground, that there is everlasting life, 
and there is everlasting punishment. There's heaven and then there's hell. There's sheep and there are goats. And it's as clear as day. Oh Lord, we just pray that you would impart your truth into our hearts. That we would know deep, deep within our hearts that we are yours. And whenever that day comes, because none of us know when that day will come, not even Christ himself knows when he will come and he will separate us. We can't bluff. We can't bluff. We can't, we can't let on that we're a sheep but we're actually a goat because Christ knows and he will separate us and we will either be with him for all eternity or separated from him for all eternity in unbearable pain and punishment and torture. You're a just God. You have to deal justly with sin. We thank you that Christ has died for our sins, that by trusting in him, we will not receive that punishment, but we will receive the blessing of eternal life. Lord, help us to trust in you, even as the dying thief, as the dying thief on the cross that day, had lived a life of rebellion towards you in his final moments of life, gave his life to the, to the Lord and was Christ would promise him that he would be in paradise with him. Lord, help us not wait. Help us not wait till we're on our deathbeds or wherever it may be. Help us not to think, I'll live my life and then one day I'll give my life to you because none of us know. May it be today. Today, Lord. Probably pray in Christ's name. Amen. The words of this song are, they're powerful words. There is a fountain filled with blood and that fountain is dry.